Pastors and church planners around the world need your help to receive a confessional Reformed Baptist theological education. Introducing the William Carey Scholarship Fund at Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. You can help students like Sam in India afford seminary training and Bible software with thousands of critically needed theological books. To learn how you can help, visit cbtseminary.org slash carry. Second Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. This is a Man of God Network, a podcast of Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary in Owensboro, Kentucky. This is the voice of the narrated Puritan. For more narrations, go to puritanaudiobooks.com. Today on the Man of God Network podcast, I want to look at the life of John Ledley Dagg. Baptist historian Tom Nettles writes, quote, For clarity, cogency, and sincerity of expression, no theological writer of the 19th century surpasses John L. Dagg. Dagg was one of the bright theologians in the early American Baptist movement. His manual of theology is still widely available, and part two of that work, A Treatise on Church Order, is available on the web. Dagg was born in 1794 in Loudoun County, Virginia, and lived to be over 90 years old. He was one of the most respected men in Baptist life and remains one of the most profound thinkers produced by his denomination. The diversity of his works demonstrates this. From his own autobiography, the log house in which my first days were passed had now been removed, and a brick storehouse stood on the site. In it, a man by the name of Johnson was selling dry goods and groceries in the year 1807. He offered me a situation in the store with a salary sufficient to defray my expenses, and my father thought it advisable to accept the offer. On the 1st of December, when not yet 14 years old, I left my father's house to make my way in the world and entered on this new employment. At parting, my father gave me parental advice and particularly urged on me to be guarded against the temptation to which I would be exposed from the presence and selling of ardent spirits. This warning had its effect, for from that time to the present, I have scarcely ever tasted any intoxicating liquor. My duties in the new situation were to assist in the sale of goods and to keep the accounts of the establishment. These did not so occupy my time as to exclude all attention to my favorite study. I purchased Maclaurin's algebra and made myself more thoroughly acquainted with the science and also found some time to devote to conic sections and fluxions. But a subject of far higher importance began now to engage my thoughts. Before this, and especially about the time that my parents were baptized, serious thoughts of religion entered my mind, and dreams of the day of judgment disturbed my slumbers. But now a deeper sense of sin affected me than I had ever previously experienced. I saw clearly his tendency to dethrone God, and felt that by this tendency his guilt was to be estimated. Without explaining my feelings to my father, I obtained from him Richard Baxter's call to the unconverted, John Bunyan's heavenly footmen, supposing that I might find in them some instruction adapted to my case. I do not remember any particular effect produced by the reading of these books, but I was restless and unhappy. 
Towards the close of the year 1808, I was invited to take charge of a school at Landmark Hill, four miles from Middleburg, for the ensuing year. In my restlessness, believing that the retirement of the country would be more favorable to my spiritual interests than a public situation in a store, I decided with my father's approbation to make the change. Accordingly, on the 1st of January 1809, before I was 15 years old, I became the master of a neighborhood school. In a house of S. H. Hathaway, with whom I boarded, were Slackhouse's History of the Bible and Thomas Boston's Human Nature in its Fourfold State. These books I read with diligence and prayed earnestly for renewing grace. On the night of February 12th, after I'd gone to bed, I thought much on the words of Christ. Blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. A glimmer of hope, feeble and transient, now first entered my mind. The next day was my birthday, and on my way to school I prayed that as I had been born on this day into the natural world, so the Lord might bring me this day into the spiritual world. In the evening after returning from school, I took up Boston's fourfold state and read until I came to a passage, think not of want of time, while the night follows a busy day, nor of want of place while fields and outhouses may be got. I rose and retired behind the corn house. Here, while in prayer to God, my soul was relieved by a joyful sense of divine acceptance. The prayer of the morning seemed to be answered, and the following words, though originally spoken in a far higher sense, appeared applicable to my case. Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. I returned to the dwelling house in the intercourse with the family, concealing with some effort the happy change that I had experienced. For many days the wonder was that I did not love more, and this wonder has not yet ceased. To him, come let me love, and so on. I often repeated throughout and felt the force of every line. Sometime afterwards, I was present at a meeting of the Long Branch Church when invitation was given to those who had hope in Christ to come forward and relate their experience. I felt strongly moved to accept the invitation with others who presented themselves. With considerations with the sufficiency of which I was not wholly satisfied held me back. At length, I adopted an unauthorized method of determining my case. Among the persons who had been expected to offer themselves to the church that day was an individual who had been my schoolmate. I decided if he went forward to accompany him. Several related their experiences and were received by the church, but as my schoolmate was not of the number, I felt perhaps with some joy released from taking up the cross. But when the pastor rose to dismiss the meeting, the young man started from a seat and asked permission to tell what the Lord had done for him. This was now unexpected to me, and I was now unable to rally for the performance of duty. I left the meeting unhappy, and many an unhappy day of spiritual darkness and conflict followed before I publicly professed Christ. To say that all my subsequent spiritual difficulties arose from my failure to make profession of religion would be to affirm far too much, but the same depravity that had rendered the cross of public profession unwelcome operated in various other ways. I did not go back wholly to the world and give myself up to commit sin greedily and without remorse, but I did not live near the Lord and order my steps before him with zealous circumspection. 
I did not deny Christ and renounce all dependence on him, but the sense of his dying love, with which my heart had once been filled, failed to exert on me a constraining power. Still, the persuasion that I had experienced a change of heart did not leave me, but my prospects for the future were sometimes very dark. For a long time, these words haunted me with torturing effect. If we sin willfully, after we have received a knowledge of the truth, there remains no more sacrifice for sin, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversary. I was conscious of having committed sin to which my will consented, and this text seemed to pronounce his fearful sentence against me. How many and how terrible were his buffetings I cannot now describe, but I well remember the time and manner in which I obtained relief. On a Sabbath day, as I was returning from public worship, which I had attended without sensible benefit, these awful words continued to roll through my mind. No more sacrifice for sin. I could see no way of escape. Nothing appeared before me but a certain fearful looking for of judgment. As I was yielding to despair, my heart resolved. Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. The resolution was formed to press through the thunders and lightnings of his justice and fix my hope on his mercy. Soon after I had laid hold on this apparently forlorn hope, the inquiry arose in my mind whence comes it that I am inclined to trust in God after all. The only answer I could give was that he himself had so inclined me, and then I asked, would he do this to disappoint me at last? This train of thought brought me through most joyfully. I was enabled to look up to God as a reconciled father and to heaven as my final and eternal home. The fearful text was still there unexplained, and in itself as dark as ever, but I had been led around it to a place of sunshine where I enjoyed the light of the Lord's countenance and the sweet foretaste of heaven. The year 1809 passed, and my success as a schoolmaster was not such as to yield much gratification to my pride. I taught 27 pupils, several of whom were older than myself. Two men of full age who were teachers placed themselves under my instruction to become more fully qualified for their business. I doubt not that I gave good instruction, but my discipline was directed by an immature judgment and was not wise. Had I been disposed to teach at the same place the next year, my school would have been much reduced, but I was otherwise inclined. Mr. Hathaway, with whom I had boarded, and who had been an attached friend, knowing my desire of further education, kindly offered to give me board if I would go to school. Having laid by enough from the income for teaching to meet all other expenses, I gladly accepted his offer. Mr. Williamson, my former teacher, had relinquished the academy and was now teaching a private school one mile from Middleburg. Under his instruction, I placed myself once more for the study of Latin, although my place of board was three miles from his schoolhouse. In January 1810, I made the second trial of Brudeman and Cordius, and found them more intelligible than before. Afterwards, I read Cornelius Nepos, six books of Caesar's commentaries, the Bucalix of Virgil, six books of the Aeonid, Seleucid and nearly the whole of Horace, and was thoroughly drilled in Mayer's introduction and made some progress in Greek. I remained in the school until the last of January 1811, the usual vacations accepted, 
and was made proud by the commendation of my teacher, who was always disposed to speak favorably of me, and who was pleased to say that, though he had taught some that had read more in the same time, he had never taught one who understood it so well. All the success and the qualification resulting from the performance of important duties to which I was afterwards called, I owe under God to the incidental remark of a thoughtless neighbor, John, can't learn Latin. My friend Mr. Hathaway continued to board me cheerfully, and afterwards, when it was in my power to offer him payment, he firmly rejected it. But my means for defraying other expenses were exhausted, and it became necessary to look out for employment that would supply the empty purse. In July 1810, my father married his second wife. Her brother, Dr. E.B. Grady, opened a store for the neighborhood in which he practiced medicine, and I became the salesman and accountant. My new situation was very pleasant. When in like business before, I was in the employment of a man who had no regard for religion, but Dr. G and his lady were Christians. A sister of Mrs. G, with her husband, Mr. Peter C. Rust, often visited us, and being warm-hearted disciples of Christ, her conversation was greatly useful to me. My spiritual state became much improved, and my Bible yielded me instruction and delight. In this state of mind, the obligation of professing Christ presented itself. That I might do this intelligently, it seemed necessary to examine the baptismal controversy. My father had taken the Virginia Religious Magazine, a Presbyterian work, in which were some ably written articles in defense of infant baptism. These I obtained and studied carefully. The arguments appeared to me defective and fallacious, and I wrote out at length what seemed to me to be a conclusive reply. Fully convinced of my duty, I offered myself in the spring of 1812 to the Baptist Church at Ebenezer, eight miles from Middleburg, and was baptized by Elder William Fristow, the pastor. My acquaintance with Dr. Grady led me to think of adopting the medical profession for the business of my life. At the close of the year 1811, Dr. G. made a generous offer to receive me as a medical student under his instruction and defray all my necessary expenses for the next three years, provided I would, for the first year, continue to serve him in the store as before. This proposal, which offered me what time I could redeem from the demands of the store for the first year, and afterwards two years of uninterrupted study, I thought my duty to accept. In August 1812, I attended a meeting of the Catoctin Association, to which our church belonged, and was distressed to see the free use made of ardent spirits by the ministers and members. There was also distressing evidence that the principal deacon of our church indulged freely in the use of the pernicious liquor, though we had no proof that he was guilty of gross drunkenness. These facts induced me to prepare a query which the church at my request sent up to the association at its next meeting. The War of 1812 rendered calls on the militia necessary, and in the spring of 1814 it was my lot to be drafted for six months' service to be performed in the vicinity of Norfolk. To one who had never endured hardship, the prospect of long marches under a hot sun and of continued exposure in an unhealthy climate was truly appalling. But I saw no alternative, and with an humble trust in Providence and a cheering hope beyond the grave, I prepared to obey the call of my country. A knapsack was obtained, and my clothes were put in readiness for departure, and a morning arrived when I was to leave home for the muster ground from which the line of march was to commence. On this morning, I received a visit from Mr. Rust, who inquired how I felt and the prospect of what was before me. 
They answered, expressing a cheerful acquiescence in the appointment of Providence. He asked whether I would not prefer to obtain a substitute. I replied, stating that I had no means to hire one. He then informed me that he had money in his pocket expressly obtained for this purpose. He was himself a poor man, but he had made application to a few wealthy friends and obtained from them the amount necessary. He had formed the opinion that God had designed me to be useful in the gospel ministry, and he felt it to be his duty to preserve my life for this service. The information which he communicated was as welcome as it was unexpected. We readily obtained a substitute who performed the service in my stead, and he and two others were the only men in the company who went through the campaign without sickness. It has always appeared to me that providence on this occasion preserved my life through the Christian kindness of Mr. Rust. In August 1814, I attended a meeting of our association at Broad Run, Frakir County. While here, the news reached us that the British vessels were ascending the Potomac. When we returned home, we found that a call had been made on the militia of our country in mass. I had a substitute then in service, but it became my duty to stand in his place, and as all were now called on, to procure another substitute was impracticable. I was therefore compelled, after all, to become a soldier. With hasty preparation, I joined the march on the first night, lodged in a hayloft near Leesburg. From this point we saw the light of the burning capital, which the British had fired the day before, on the Maryland side to Seneca Mills. On the way we met some fugitives from the Battle of Bladensburg, who seemed to believe that the enemy were close behind them. In a day or two we received orders to proceed to Baltimore, against which place the British were making their next preparation. On arriving we were posted in the rear of Fort McHenry. From this position we had a clear view of the British ships when they landed their forces at North Point, and soon after we saw distinctly across the water the smoke of the battle in which the British commander, General Ross, was killed. Orders were now received that we should march to meet the enemy. On our way we met the wounded returning from the battle, and passing the entrenchments we halted for the night between the city and the enemy. Early next morning, the bombardment of the fort commenced. The next day, our position was several times changed, and we were several times in expectation of an immediate approach, an attack of the enemy. But as if by mutual consent, the two armies never met. The following night, however, we lay so near them that their encampment, which was visible from the top of the hill, appeared only a half-mile distance. That was a fearful night. In a few days, our company was dismissed from service. Until this time, my health had continued good, but now it began to fail. I was 80 miles from home and able to walk but little. Here another kind interposition of divine providence appeared, furnishing the means of my return. A father who was a member of the church to which I belonged and himself exempt from military service had come on horseback to see his son, who was not yet permitted to leave the army. A similar reason had brought another neighbor, and these two men, now ready to return, offered to share their horses with me. We were to walk by turns, and went fatigued to be relieved by an exchange with one of those who rode. The next morning I reached home, and an illness of some weeks' continuance followed, during which, though others apprehended a fatal issue, a strong impression continued fixed on my mind that the Lord had worked for me to do, and that I should live to accomplish it. The consideration that one month of military service in a comparatively healthy region brought me so near to the gate of death 
has often served to heighten my appreciation of the mercy that delivered me from a campaign of six months in the city of Norfolk. In the early part of the year 1815, a fatal epidemic prevailed. My stepmother died on the 11th of February. My father was greatly depressed, and after expressing to me his persuasion that he would not long survive, committed the charge of his family to me as the eldest son. I attributed this to the depression of mind which he was suffering, but on the 17th, while I was in school, my brother James rode out to inform me that my father was sick. Hastening in, I found him speechless. That night he breathed his last and left me at the head of a sorrowful family, needing guidance and protection and a supply of necessary wants. I gathered the children together, united with them in prayer, implored the blessings of heaven in our time of need. My situation in the family of Mr. Powell was very pleasant. He was a man of intelligence and refinement, and association with his family and the company that visited him tended to cure my awkward bashfulness. I had much time for study, and as my duty in teaching required, improved myself much in the knowledge of Latin and Greek. Being the only Baptist in the family, or among their connections, my religious opinions were often brought under discussion. On one occasion, when on a visit to Major Burr Powell, he put Mason's essay on the church into my hand, pleasantly remarking that he wished to convert me to the Pado-Baptist faith. I received the book, thankfully, and after reading it with care, wrote a review in which I controverted his positions and maintained Baptist principles. This he read, and at least became satisfied that there was very little encouragement to labor for my conversion. Mr. Cuthbert Powell asked permission to read this manuscript and after perusing it, favored me with some criticisms on it, and took occasion to advise that I should turn my attention to the legal profession. Suspecting that I was inclined to the Christian ministry, he remarked that it was not every man's duty to minister at the altar, and that he thought my talents were specially adapted to the bar. I replied that though I could not decide to give myself to the gospel ministry, I was unable to go in a contrary direction." The question respecting the ministry was at length pressed closely on my conscience. In the spring of 1816, the Ebenezer Church passed a resolution requesting me to exercise my gifts in their meetings. With this request, I cheerfully and unhesitatingly complied, so far as I could, in common with other members of the church. But I could go no further. The question whether I was called of God to the gospel ministry was one between God and my own conscience, and I cannot permit the church to decide it for me. Months of agonizing prayer and prayerful heart-searching followed. Was my heart right in the matter? Had I qualifications for public preaching? The latter question I at length became willing to leave to the church, and if, from too favorable a judgment of my qualifications, they should put me forward in a position from which I should be compelled to retire with disgrace, I was willing to submit to the disgrace. But whether my heart was right, the church could not and must not judge. I feared that I had not the right motives for entering the ministry. At length, the advice of Mr. Powell rose before me with success at the bar in honor and affluence. Over against those, I contemplated the reproach of being a Baptist minister and the poverty to be expected. In full view of the contrast, my heart said, Give me reproach and poverty if I may serve Christ and save souls. From that hour, I never doubted my call to the ministry. My first sermon was preached in December of this year. 
From the days in which I read Richard Baxter's Call to the Unconverted, John Bunyan's Heavenly Footman, Slackhouse's History of the Bible, and Thomas Boston's Human Nature in a Fourfold State, I continued to read the religious books which came or fell in my way. This course, though not adopted with any view to the ministry, I found of great use to me. It supplied me with manner for preaching, and in public speaking I suffered less embarrassment and lack of words that I had anticipated. My attempts in the pulpit were well received, and in November of 1817 I was called to ordination. An important question now presented itself for practical solution. Having been solemnly set apart for the ministry, was it my duty to devote myself exclusively to the work and relinquish all secular employment? On the afternoon of my ordination, in a conversation with Elder Fristow, pastor of the church, I sought his advice on this subject. When I quoted the words of Paul, the Lord has ordained that they who preach the gospel should live of the gospel, he remarked, the Lord's ordinances are often broken, and they who preach the gospel often find it impossible to live on the provision made for them. He set before me the risk of relying on such support, but added, if you are willing to try the experiment, it will have my approval. To try the experiment was, after prayerful deliberation, the course which I decided to adopt. If it should fail, after a fair trial, I could then return to secular employment for support with a clear conscience. But the experiment must be a fair one, and to render it so, it must be made on some plan which gave a reasonable prospect of success. My expenses must be brought so low as to give hope of providing for them, and my services must not be engaged where there was not a hope of remuneration. It was the custom of the country to give one Sabbath in the month to each place of preaching, and having fixed on $400 as the least possible amount for the expenses of a year, I determined not to engage a Sabbath to any place without the promise of $100. This determination I made known to some of my brethren, who entered into the plan and obtained subscriptions to the amount required. With this prospect, I decided to relinquish my school, and during the years 1818 and 1819, devoted myself wholly to the ministry. On the 18th of December, 1817, I was married to Fanny H. Thornton. Her uncle, William Hunton, a benevolent member of the Broadrun Church, to which she belonged, offered us, rent-free, the use of a house and lot near the village of New Baltimore, Fakir County. Desires to make our expenses as little as possible, we gladly accepted the offer. Here we lived two years in much poverty on cheap food, with cheap clothing and almost without furniture. But I was happy being engaged in the Lord's work and with a quiet conscience. When at home I employed myself in the preparation of sermons and other studies, my books which were set out on a rude shelf were few in number, but among them were Thomas Scott's commentaries, Robertson's Hebrew Grammar, Buckstore's Hebrew Lexicon, and Lumsden's Compendium of the Hebrew Bible, which I used profitably. During the year 1818, I preached on Sabbath days at Ebenezer and Middleburg in Luton County. We will now finish off this podcast a short entry to John L. Dagg from a reading from Ten Baptists Every Christian Should Know. For the next eight years, Dagg pastored several smaller churches in northern Virginia. But beginning in 1825, Dagg accepted the call to a larger church in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, the Fifth Baptist Church. 
Dagger remained as pastor of this church until 1834, when his voice began to fail. The next few years saw Dagg serving as president and professor of the Haddington Institute, where he remained until 1836. He left Philadelphia in 1836 to spend the next eight years in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, as president of the Alabama Female Athenaeum. After leaving Alabama in January of 1844, he became president of Mercer University in Pinfield, Georgia. Dagg would also serve the university as professor of theology. His stated goal was that Mercer would become the South's own theological seminary. In order to accomplish this, he built the premier theological department in the South. His presidency was marked by great prosperity for the university. He retired as president of Mercer in 1854 and from teaching theology there the next year. After his retirement, he continued to live in Georgia for the next 15 years. During these years, he published his four largest works, Manual of Theology, 1857, Treatise on Church Order, 1858, Elements of Moral Science, 1859, Evidences of Christianity, 1869. The year after publishing his Evidences of Christianity, he moved to live with his daughter because of increasing health problems. Amazingly, he lived until June 11, 1884, when he died in Hainville, Alabama, at the age of 90.